Chapter Two of the Riddle of the Frozen Flame by Mary E. Hanshu and Thomas W. Hanshu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two: The Frozen Flames. Meryton Towers had been called the loneliest spot in England by many of the tourists who chanced to visit the Fen district, and it was no misnomer. Nigel, having seen it some thirteen years before, found that his memory had dimmed the true vision of the place considerably, that where he had builded romance, romance was not, where he had softened harsh outlines and peopled dark corridors with his own fancies, those same outlines had taken on a grimness that he could hardly believe possible and the long dark corridors of his mind's vision were longer and darker and lonelier than he had ever imagined any spot could be. It was a handsome place, no doubt, in its gaunt, grey, prison-like way, and, too, it had a moat and a miniature portcullis that rather tickled his boyish fancy. The furnishings, however, had an appalling grimness that took the very heart out of one, Chairs, which seemed to have grown in their places for centuries, crowded the corners of hallway and stairs like gigantic nightmares of their original prototypes. Monstrous curtains of red brocade, grown purple with the years, seemed to hang from every window and door, crowding out the light and air. The carpets were thick and dark, and had lost all sign of pattern in the dull gloom of the centuries. It was, in fact, a house that would create ghosts. The atmosphere was alive with that strange sensation of disembodied spirits which some very old houses seem to possess. Narrow, slit-like windows, in perfect keeping with the architecture and the needs of the period in which it was built, if not with modern ideas of hygiene and health, kept the rooms dark and musty. When Nigel first entered the place through the great front door thrown open by the solemn-faced butler, who, he learned, had been kept on from his uncle's time, he felt as though he were entering his own tomb. When the door shut, he shuddered as the light and sunshine vanished. The first night he hardly slept a wink. His bed was a huge four-poster, girt about with plush hangings like overripe plums that shut him in as though he were in some monstrous victorian trinket-box a post creaked at every turn he made in its downy softnesses and being used to the light camp-like furniture of an indian bungalow he got up took an eiderdown with him and spent the rest of the hours upon a sofa drawn up beside an open window that people could live in such places he told himself over and over again. No wonder my poor old uncle disappeared. Any self-respecting Christian would. There'll be some slight alterations made in Meryton Towers before I'm many days older. You can bet your life on that. Old great-grandmother four-poster takes her congé tomorrow morning. If I must live here, I'll sleep anyhow. He settled himself back against the hard horsehair sofa and pulled up the blind. The room was instantly filled with grey and lavender shadows, while without 
the fens stretched out in unbroken lines as though all the rest of the world were made up of nothing else. Lonely? Merriton had known the loneliness of Indian nights far away from any signs of civilization, the loneliness of the jungle when the air was so still that the least sound was like the dropping of a bomb, the strange mystical loneliness which comes to the only white man in a town of natives, but all these were as nothing as compared to this. He could imagine a chap committing suicide living in such a house. Sir Joseph Merriton had disappeared five years before, and no wonder. Merriton lay with his eyes upon the window, smoking a cigarette, and surveyed the outlook before him with despairing eyes. What a future for a chap in his early thirties to face! Not a sign of habitation anywhere, not a vestige of it, save at the far edge of the fens, where a clump of trees and thick shrubs told him that behind lay Withersby Hall. This, intuition told him, was the home of Antoinette Prelier, the girl of the train, of the wreck, and now of his dreams. Then his thoughts turned to her. Gad, to bring a frail, delicate little butterfly to a place like this was like trying to imprison a ray of sunshine in a leaden box. His eyes, riveted upon where the clump of trees stood out against the semi-darkness of the approaching dawn, saw of a sudden a light prick out like a tiny flame low down upon the very edge of the fens. One light, two, three, and then a very host of them flashed out, as though some unseen hand had torn the heavens down and strewn their jewels broadcast over the marshes. Instinctively he got to his feet. What on earth? But even as his lips formed the unspoken exclamation, came yet another light to join the others dancing and twinkling and flickering out there across the gloomy marshlands. What the dickens was it, anyhow? A sort of unearthly fireworks display? Or some new explosive experiment? The dancing flames got into his eyes like bits of lighted thistledown, blown here, there, and everywhere. Merriton got to his feet and threw open another window-bottom with a good deal of effort, for the sashes were old and stiff. Then, clad only in his silk pyjamas, and with the cigarette charring itself to a tiny column of grey ash in one hand, he leaned far out over the sill and watched those twinkling, dancing, maddening little star-flames with the eyes of amazed astonishment. In a moment sleep had gone from his eyelids and he felt thoroughly awake. Dashed if he wouldn't throw on a few clothes and investigate. The thing was so strange, so incredible. He knew well enough from Borkins's, the venerable butler, description earlier in the evening that that part of the marshes was uninhabited. Too low for stars the things were, for they hung on the edges of the marsh grass like tiny lanterns swung there by fairy hands. In such a house, in such a room, 
with the shadow of that old four-poster winding its long fingers over him, Merriton began to perspire. It was so devilish uncanny. He was a brave enough man in human matters, but somehow these flames out there in the uninhabited stretch of the marshes were surely caused by no human agency. Go and investigate he would this very minute. He drew in his head, and brought the window down with a bang that went sounding through the gaunt, deserted old house. Hastily he began to dress, and even as he struggled into a pair of tweed trousers came the sound of a soft knock upon his door, and he whipped round as though he had been shot, his nerves all a jingle from the very atmosphere of the place. "'And who the devil are you?' he snapped out in an angry voice, all the more angry since he was conscious of a slight trembling of the knees. The door swung open a trifle, and the pale face of Borkins appeared around it. His eyes were wide with fright, his mouth hung open. "'Sir Nigel, sir, I heard a dreadful noise, like a pistol shot it was, coming from this room. Anything the matter, sir?' "'Nothing, you ass!' broke out Merriton fretfully, as the butler began to show other parts of his anatomy round the corner of the door. "'Come in or go out, whichever you please, but for the Lord's sake do one or the other. There's a beastly draught. The noise you heard was that window, which possibly hasn't been opened for a century or two, groaning in pain at being forced into action again. Can't sleep in this beastly room. Haven't closed my eyes yet.' and when I did get out of that Victorian atrocity over there and take to the sofa by the window, why, the first thing I saw were those flames flickering out across the horizon like signal fires, or something. I've been watching them for the past twenty minutes, and they've got on my nerves. I'm going out to investigate. Borkins gave a little exclamation of alarm, and put one trembling hand over his face. Merriton suddenly registered the fact as being a symptom of the state of nerves to which Merriton Towers was likely to reduce one. Then Borkins shambled across the room and laid a timid hand upon Merriton's arm. "'For God's sake, sir, don't!' he murmured in a shaken voice. "'Those lights, sir, if you knew the story, if you values your life at any price at all, don't go out, sir, and investigate them. Don't! You're a dead man in the morning, if you do. What's that? Merriton swung round and looked into the weak, rather watery blue eyes of his butler. What the devil do you mean, Borkins, talking a lot of rot? What are those flames, anyway? And why, in heaven's name, shouldn't I go out and investigate him if I want to? Who's to stop me? I, your lordship, if I ever has any influence with human nature— returned Borkins vehemently. "'The story's common knowledge, Sir Nigel, sir. Then their flames is supernatural. Frozen flames, the villagers calls them, because they don't seem to give out no heat. That part of the fence is uninhabited, and there isn't a soul in the whole village as would venture anywhere near it after dark.' "'Why?' "'Because they never comes back, that's why, sir,' said Borkins. "'Tisn't any old wife's tale, neither. "'There's been cases by the score. "'Only a matter of six months ago, "'one of the boys from the mill, "'who was somewhat the worse for liquor, 
said he was a-going to see who it was what made them flames light up by theirselves. And he never came back. And that same night another flame was added to the number. Phew! Bit of a tall story, that, Borkins. Nevertheless, a cold chill crept over Merriton's bones, and he gave a forced, mirthless laugh. "'As true as the gospel, Sir Nigel,' said Borkins solemnly. "'That's what always happens. Every time anyone ventures that way, well, they're a sound in their own death knell, so to speak, and you can see the new light appear.' "'But there's never no trace of the person that ventured out across the fence at evening time. "'He or she, a girl tried it once, Lord Saver, "'vanishes off the face of the earth as clean as though they'd never been born. "'God alone knows what it is that lives there, or what them flames may be, "'but I tells you it's sheer death to attempt to save yourself so long as night lasts.' And in the morning, well, it's gone, and there isn't a thing to be seen for the looking. Merciful powers, what a peculiar thing! Despite his mockery of the supernatural, Merriton could not help but feel a sort of awe steal over him at the tale as told by Borkins in the eeriest hour of the whole twenty-four, that which hangs between darkness and dawn. Should he go, or shouldn't he? He was a fool to believe the thing, and yet he certainly didn't want to die yet a while, with Antoinette Brellier a mere handful of yards away from him, and all the days his own to cultivate her acquaintance in. "'You fairly made my flesh creep with your beastly story,' he said in a rather high-pitched voice. "'Might have reserved it until morning.' After my debut in this haunt of spirits, Borkins, consider my nerves. India's made a hash of them. Get back to bed, man, and don't worry over my investigations. I swear I won't venture out tonight at any rate. Perhaps tomorrow I may have summoned up enough courage, but I've no fancy for funerals yet a while. So you can keep your pleasant little reminiscences for another time, and I'll give you my word of honour that I'll do nothing rash. Borkins gave a sigh of relief. He passed his hand over his forehead, and his eyes, rather shifty, rather narrow, pale blue eyes, which Merriton had instinctively disliked, he couldn't tell why, lightened suddenly. "'Thank God for that, sir,' he said solemnly. "'You've relieved my mind on that score. I've always thought your poor uncle, Sir Joseph Merriton, and those flames there might have been the reason for his disappearance. Though, of course— What's that? Merriton turned round and looked at him, his brow furrowed, the whole personality of the man suddenly awake. My uncle, Borkins, how long have these uh, lights been seen hereabouts? I don't remember them as a child. Oh, mostly always, I believe, sir. "'Though they ain't been much noticed before the last four years,' replied Borkins. "'I think, yes, come August next. Four years was the first time my attention was called to him.' 
Merriton's laugh held a note of relief. Then you needn't have worried. My uncle has been missing for a little more than five years, and that, therefore, when he did disappear, the flames obviously had nothing to do with it. Borkins's wrinkled, parchment-like cheeks went a dull, unhealthy red. He opened his mouth to speak, and then drew back again. Merriton gave him a keen glance. "'Of course, how foolish of me, as you say, sir. Impossible,' he stammered out, bowing backward toward the door. "'I'll be getting back to my bed again, and leave you to finish your rest undisturbed. "'I'm sorry to have troubled you, I'm sure, sir. Only I was afraid something had happened.' "'That's all right. Good night,' returned Merriton curtly, and turned the key in the lock as the door closed. He stood for a moment thinking, his eyes upon the winking, flickering points of light that seemed dimmer in the fast-growing light. "'Now, why did he make that bloomer about dates, I wonder? Uncle's been gone five years, and Borkins knew it. He was here at the time. And yet, why did he suggest that old wives' tale as a possible solution of the disappearance?' Borkins, my lad, there's more behind those watery blue eyes of yours than men may read. Hmm, now I wonder why the deuce he lied to me. End of chapter 2